Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Tonight we are beginning a series of studies taking an in-depth look at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. And the title of this series is The Suffering Servant. And, you know, the chapter breaks that we have in our Bible are helpful because they, they help us to all find the, the same place to where we can say, turn to Isaiah 52 or turn to Isaiah 53 verses, just turn to Isaiah and, you know, we're going to find this paragraph. So it's helpful in that way, but sometimes the chapter breaks seem to be out of place. And this is one of those times. You see, chapter 53 of Isaiah really should begin in verse 13 of chapter 52. Because what we have in these verses is a song with five stanzas. And that's how we're going to break it up. Tonight we're going to look at God's servant exalted in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. And then we're going to talk about next time God's humble servant. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to look at the suffering servant in chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. And then the silent servant in chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. And then finally, the fifth stanza, God's servant satisfied, chapter 53, verses 10 through 12. This portion of Scripture has been referred to as the Mount Everest of the Old Testament because it's the highest ground, if you would. It depicts in great detail the suffering of our Savior on the cross at Calvary. And I have always felt that one of the best things that we can do as believers is to regularly spend time sitting at the foot of the cross. One of the best things that we can do in our, in our lives and in our walks is to, to, to spend that time where we are just sitting and gazing and meditating upon and thinking about in a, in a deep way the cross of Christ. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks as we look at this. You know, I was reading a sermon recently this week by Joseph Parker. Joseph Parker was a guy who was preaching in the late 1800s. And he was commenting in one of his sermons on the blood of Christ, he was commenting on how churches in his day were shrinking back from talking about the blood of Christ. And as I read that, I thought, man, nothing has changed. You know, nothing has, has changed from, from that day to this day, because that, that's a problem that we have uh, in, in this day. Parker's like, going, you know, and he, this, he's writing over 100 years ago, he's preaching. Over 100 years ago, and he's going, you know, there's a problem in the church today. No one wants to talk about the blood. And I thought, wow, you know, that same thing was going on back then. I, I have a tendency sometimes to think that we're, you know, in such a different realm and a different culture, you know, than then. But you read, you know, guys like Parker and Lloyd-Jones, and, and, and they're the same things that we're facing today. But in that sermon, 
Parker made this comment. I thought it was interesting. He says that we have become a day, an age in the church, where a dainty piety has forced upon us a dainty vocabulary. Well, listen, there is nothing dainty about Isaiah chapter 53. It is very graphic, and it's graphic for a reason. Let's begin and read through the the whole song here, beginning in chapter 52, verse 13, and we'll read down through verse 12 of chapter 53, and we'll take the whole thing in tonight as we read through it. Isaiah writes, the Lord speaking here, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. 
because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. The Lord declares, Behold my servant. Many scholars have called this the Ecce Homo of the Old Testament. Remember when Christ was before Pilate and Pilate was watching just basically everything that, that took place with Christ at the crucifixion. He, he made the declaration, Behold the man. Well, here God says, Behold my servant. This was written by Isaiah 700 years before Christ was born. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found 200 years before Christ, the, they, they found there in the Dead Sea Scrolls the book of Isaiah. It was found in its entirety, and these chapters were, were included, which is important because there have been those who have tried to take these out. There have been those who have tried to rid these chapters from the book of Isaiah. There have been rabbis who have tried to espunge this from Scripture because it describes so clearly the suffering of an individual for the sins of the people. And there are also those who say that this is a picture of Israel. That then this is a picture of the, the nation is the suffering servant. And, and it is true that in the book of Isaiah, Israel is pictured as the servant of the Lord. But understand, it's always the remnant that is pictured as the servant. The, the nation as a whole is being punished because of their sin and their rebellion. They're encountering the suffering of punishment because of their sin and their rebellion against the Lord. Plus, this is clearly in the singular. As we read through this, I think it was very clear to see that this is talking about an individual who is being punished not for his own sins, but for the sins and the iniquity of others. Philip in Acts chapter 8 is taken by the Lord from the revival that's happening there in Samaria. And the Lord takes him out into the desert and he comes upon the Ethiopian eunuch who is there in his chariot. And as the Ethiopian eunuch sees Philip and Philip sees that he's reading a, a scroll and he ha happens to be reading from the scroll of Isaiah and this particular portion of scripture. And, and Philip comes up to him and asks him, do you understand you know, what you're reading? And, and he says, you know, of whom is this speaking of? And we're told there in Acts chapter 8 that Philip preached Christ to him from this passage. So there's no mystery here as to who this is talking about. And here in this passage that we have just read, we clearly come to the highest thing that Isaiah has ever seen. Higher even than Isaiah chapter 6, where we read in Isaiah chapter 6 that it says Isaiah, he says, I saw the Lord and I saw him high and lifted up, sitting upon his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, that's what we expect in a vision of the sovereign God, right? We expect to see Him on His throne, high and lifted up in His train of His robe filling the temple. We expect to see that. But what we are reading here is something that is really incomprehensible. 
It's something that is beyond our imagination. That we would, would never imagine the sovereign God suffering in such a way. And that's why this is the highest. It's the zenith. It's the Mount Everest. Because it's beyond what we could ever comprehend. Behold my servant. That word behold means look at him and gaze upon him and consider him to see him clearly. Behold my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Now, it's interesting to know that how the Father starts this song, that He takes Jesus and He exalts Him. This is the first thing. It's the first thing that He wants us to see, that He's going to take Him and He exalts Him. He lifts Him up before us. And there's a reason for this, because the only way to even begin to understand the depths to which he stooped is to get a glimpse. It's to get a glimpse of the heights from which he started. It's almost as if God the Father is saying, I want you to understand as you enter into this passage... A passage that will take you down. A a passage that is going to pull on your heart to depths that are unimaginable for you that I want you to know that there's no defeat here. There's no defeat in what you are reading. And he, he says, I want you to see this first. I want you to see him exalted first. I want you to know that in the depths to which he will stoop, he's accomplishing something. There's a reason for it. Behold my servant. He shall deal prudently. The word prudently means dealing in wisdom. Dealing with discretion. It means dealing with something in wisdom to the complete end of it where something is accomplished. You see, Jesus knew why he came. He knew what his mission was. He knew that he was going to a cross. He knew. The Bible tells us that he was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. That is a mind-boggling thing to consider. That before they ever spoke the world into existence, before the first man was ever created, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit knew. It was determined, it was laid out that God the Son, Jesus Christ, would be slain. That He would be the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us of Christ that who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He shall move prudently, accomplishing the purpose from which he came. But he will be exalted and extolled. Other translations put it this way. He will be lifted up. He will be very high. He will rise up. He will raise himself up. He will stand even higher. And scholars have called this the commencement, the continuation, and the climax. The commencement, 
the resurrection. This is where it all begins. This is what he wants us to see at the very beginning before he starts talking about the death is that that there's a victory in this. There's a resurrection, the commencement, and then there's the continuation, the ascension, and then the climax that he's seated at the right hand of the Father where he sits today making intercession for the saints is our high priest. This is a picture of Christ that we see often in the Scriptures. In fact, let me read to you just from a couple passages, uh, beginning in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, "...that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And then there's that incredible passage in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded and having the same love and being of one accord and of one mind, and let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself, and let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. And then he says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and and coming in the likeness of men and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, God also has highly exalted him. And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Behold my servant. Behold my servant. He shall accomplish what he set out to do. He shall be exalted and extolled, lifted up to a place where there is only under, there's nothing over. He will be above everything. He will be exalted. He will be lifted up. He will be extolled. And so the Father sets the stage by exalting Him. He sets the stage by talking about His victory, His his resurrection. And He starts that way because in verse 14, He then says, just as many were astonished at you. And so His visage was marred more than any man and His form more than the sons of men. The word astonished here, astonai in the Greek, means to be made desolate. It means to be made waste. It means to be paralyzed. 
And the idea being that they were so staggered by what they saw of the cross, so staggered by by what they saw of Jesus and what He went through that it froze them. They were desolate. They were laid to waste. They were paralyzed by it. His visage was marred. In other words, He was a vision of distortion. He was a vision of desolation. He was a vision of disfigurement. Last night, I watched a few clips from the movie The Passion. And around this time of the year, I like to re-watch that movie. I think it's a great thing to do. And to look at and just, just kind of take in again what, what was depicted in that movie of what, what Christ went through for us. And I like to do that as we get close to Easter. And it was a very, very graphic movie, which is why it received an, an R rating. But you know what? As graphic as it was, as graphic as it was, it wasn't as graphic as what the Bible says. It wasn't as graphic as the real deal. You see, in Isaiah chapter 50, we're told that Jesus, His beard was pulled out. Pulled out of His face. Now just turn for a moment. Grab the person by the head next to you and just (laughs) yank, you know? (laughs) No, don't do that. (laughs) Could you imagine? And the face is even more sensitive. But in the movie, he has his beard. Here, Isaiah says, his visage was such that he no longer looked like a man. He no longer looked like a human being. The passion doesn't go that far. But in an interview, Mel Gibson said this about his movie. He says, we couldn't go any further. We couldn't be any more graphic because no one would have been able to stomach it. People wouldn't have been able to, to watch it or to sit through it. And if you saw it, you know it was a sobering film. When it was over, unlike any movie I've ever seen, when it was over, it was, it was really a silent, sobering crowd. Packed theater, but... All you really heard was sobs. And what you saw was a lot of filled popcorn bags. It was like people couldn't, they just couldn't do it like a normal movie. They couldn't just sit through that. And that's the idea behind this word, astonished is that they were laid waste, they were made desolate, they were were paralyzed by what they saw. And it started with the beating. It started with them beating Him with their fists, spitting upon Him, blindfolding Him, and then hitting Him again and mocking Him, saying, prophesy, tell us who hit you. And they pulled out his beard and they, they, they took that crown of thorns and, and, and the crowns. In fact, I'm going to bring it next week. I have a crown of the, the type of crown. I mean, they're, they're this long and they're pointy. 
and they shoved it down upon his head. And then he was scourged with the Roman flagellum. Most of you know what that, what that was. It was a stick about this big with nine strands of leather and tied into the strands of leather were pieces of rock and metal and sharp objects so that when it would hit the flesh, it would, it would rip it to shreds, basically. The back would begin to boil. It would begin to, to just swell up from the bruising and the beating until finally one of those lashes would hit one of those bubble bursts and it would just explode flesh. Just exploding, going everywhere. Many died before that beating was over. And the whole process of that beating was one of examination. You see, when the criminal was being scourged, if he opened his mouth to incriminate others who were involved in the crime, they would lighten up on the beating or they would stop altogether to get him to talk. That was the the purpose. But if the criminal stayed quiet, they would lay it on even heavier. And we're told here that Jesus was silent as a lamb before his shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. He didn't say a word. And so they laid it on even heavier and he said nothing, which no doubt is, is what led Pilate to proclaim, behold the man. Behold the man. As he just took that beating without saying anything. It was really miraculous that Jesus was still alive after the beating. When they saw him beaten, they were so paralyzed. They were made desolate by what they saw. In verse 3 of chapter 53, notice it says, we turned our faces from him. We turned our faces from him. What they saw at Calvary was a monstrosity. And the Old Testament tried to depict that. You see, when a worshiper came to worship, he brought an ox or he brought a lamb there to the temple or the tabernacle. And the lamb was always inspected for blemishes because it had to be a lamb without blemish, without defect, without a flaw in it. And so the lamb was always inspected. The worshiper was never inspected because it was just taken for granted that the worshiper was sinful. That the worshiper was full of sin. That's why he was there. But the lamb had to be spotless. And when the lamb was declared spotless by the priest, the priest would then take your hand and he'd put it on the head of that lamb. And by doing so, as you put your hand on that, the head of that animal, it was a symbol of the fact that you were identifying at that moment with the fact That all of your sin was being transferred to this innocent victim. And then the priest would give you a knife. And you would slit the throat of that lamb. And the blood would begin to drip into a golden basin. But as that lamb, as you slit its throat, you would, you would feel it. You would, just, you would sense that, 
lamb wrestling and staggering. And then finally, that animal would collapse, and you would know that an innocent animal had just died in your place. But then the animal would be skinned. The the head would be taken off and it would be set over by itself. And then they would take out all the entrails and they would take out the kidneys and, and they would place it there around the head. And then they would take the legs off and they would cut the legs off and they would pile it on top. And what you had was a monstrosity. So that it no longer looked like a lamb. And that was the point. Because the greater monstrosity would be at Calvary. The greater monstrosity would be at Golgotha. Where his visage was so marred that he didn't look anymore like a man. Hanging there. We don't see him that way. Because that wouldn't make for good art. You know, that wouldn't make, that wouldn't sell a painting. That wouldn't make for a good PowerPoint slide, you know. But his visage was so marred that he no longer looked like a man and he didn't look anymore like the Son of God either. Because he's even greater than the beating that he took was the fact that the Bible says that The sins of the world, past, present, and future, were heaped upon him. That he took upon himself your sin, my sin, all the sin of the world. He was crucified from before the foundation of the world. And all of the sin of humanity was placed upon him. And that was a monstrosity beyond imagination. From the heights of leaving, as as Paul said in Philippians, uh, leaving heaven to the depths of coming to that place, crucified from before the foundation of the world for my sin and your sin. You know, there's all the debate about, was it the Jews who killed him or the Romans who killed him? Guess what? It was us. It was us. I was reminded recently of the fact in the movie In the Passion that Mel Gibson, he, he actually is in the film. You might not have known this. He plays one part. You never would know that it was him, though, because the part that he plays, it's, it's when the Roman soldier takes the spike and he's putting it on the hand of Jesus and then he's taking the hammer and all you see is his arm and the hammer coming down. That's Mel Gibson's two hands. And he did that to say, I crucified him. I nailed him. Because it was for our sin. It was me. And I think when a person really grasps that reality, when a person really comes to the realization of of recognizing and saying, it it was my sin that put you there, it it is sobering, but it's also life-changing because you realize and you know it had to be that way. That Jesus came and He died. He went to the cross for my sin, not just the sin of the world. And I think when a person grabs a hold of that, you just look at it differently. You see it differently. It changes you. It affects you. 
That's why I said in the the beginning, when we take the time and we just sit at the foot of Calvary and we look at him and we, we picture him, his visage being marred in that way and realizing that was my sin being thrust upon him. And the greater monstrosity being God the Father looking down on his son and turning his face so that the son would cry out because of the sin of the world being placed upon him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's been put this way, a sinless Jesus became sin-filled so that sin-filled people could become sin-free. That's what he did for us. Robert Murray McShane put it this way, God heaped upon His Son all of our sins until there was nothing but sin to be seen. He appeared all sins so that nothing of His own beauty appeared. The sin of every tyrant, every dictator, every mass murderer, but also the sin of every evil thought that we have thought every lie that has been told, every gossip that has been shared, every lustful thought and and deed that has been carried out. Jesus went to the cross for that. Behold my servant, the Lord says, he shall deal wisely, strongly, completely to the completion of the thing that, that he was set forth to do. And he then will be exalted and he will be extolled and he will be lifted up above all because those who saw him were staggered by what was before their eyes because he was mauled and brutalized beyond any semblance of a human being. He was the vision of distortion, the vision of desolation. He was the vision of disfigurement. So in verse 15... And the idea when he says so there is because of this, because of his brutalized frame and his death, he shall sprinkle many nations. Because of his sacrifice, he shall sprinkle many nations. The idea of sprinkling, we find in at least three times in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 14, verse 7 is one. And it's the idea there where the priest is sprinkling the, the leper who has been cleansed. We also see sprinkling in the blood of the sacrifice upon the head of the worshiper. And it's signifying that his sins have been forgiven. But I want you to note here that Jesus is the one who's doing the sprinkling. He is both the sacrifice and the sacrificer. He is both the offering and the priest. And some look at that and they they say, oh, how can this be? How can he be the sacrifice in one verse and the priest in the, in the next? But understand, there's no disparity in that at all. No, the disparity is between his exaltation and his humiliation. It's between the height of who he was and the depths to which he went to save us. That's the disparity. The scripture, it makes no disparity between him being the sacrifice for our sins and then being the high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us, sitting there at the right hand of the Father. There's no confusion there. He is both of those things. 
No, but what is incomprehensible is who he was and the degree to which he stooped because of his love for us. Because he cared so much about us. So that he could sprinkle many nations. He shall cleanse is what that means. Many nations. He was the sacrifice that that was for all people, for all races, for all nationalities. That's what's meant by many nations stretching to every part of the globe. His sacrifice, there wasn't a single individual, single person, single race that couldn't be covered by the sacrifice of the Savior there upon the cross. Because they would just embrace what he did by faith. And Isaiah says that kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall hear. Kings and political leaders silenced. The ACLU silenced. You know, today there's a lot of talk about political correctness. And one of the things that people like to just, you know, banter and beat upon is, can't call somebody a sinner. That'll hurt their self-esteem. They'll have to go to therapy. Serious. In Canada, I mean, it's becoming against the law to, to call somebody a sinner and to call certain sins in particular, naming it as a sin. Silenced. The idea that it's wrong to call somebody a sinner, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because listen, if we're honest, and we have to be honest, right? You're a sinner. And so am I. I'm a sinner. If we are honest, we are deplorable. We are twisted. We are messed up. But God valued you and loved you so much as an individual that He sent His Son to pay the price for your sin. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus came to die in your place and to die in my place so that we might be sprinkled by His blood and cleansed and made new and forgiven That, my friends, is awesome. That, my friends, is incredible. To know that you are that loved, that should only help your self-esteem. To know that God loves you that much. World leaders will be stunned by Him. Listen to what Psalm 72 declared. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. And the kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents and the kings of Sheba and Zeba will will offer gifts. Yes, all the kings shall fall down before him and all nations shall serve him. And in Philippians chapter 2, we read there that when Christ comes back that every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Behold my servant. Look at him. Gaze upon him. What do we do with this? I know this. As I read this, I know that I need to understand better the love of Christ. 
Paul prays there in Ephesians chapter 3 for the church in Ephesus. It's an inspired prayer, so it carries over to us in this day. There he prays that you might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Oh, I need to know of that love more. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul declares that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ. That in the ages to come, God will still be revealing the exceeding riches of his grace to us in Christ. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have apprehended. I haven't achieved my goal yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. You catch that last phrase? Listen, our destination is not just to a place, but it's to an image. And the image is conformed to his death. So I realize that if I'm growing in Christ, then that means there's got to be less of Rob and more of Jesus. It's like John declared, the Baptist, that he needs to de- I need to decrease that he might increase more of Jesus. That, that's the answer. And when I see his love and his death and the depths to which he stooped for me, you know what? I'm embarrassed at the lack of love that I have for him. I love the Lord. I do. But I know my heart. I know how easily I can be distracted. I know that there are areas of, uh, where, where there's apathy. I can struggle with my flesh. And I know that in overcoming those things, there is no hope at all in me. There is no hope at all in my flesh. But it's only by His grace. It's only through His grace. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? And I think the key word in that verse is freely. It's the whole idea that, look, Jesus came and went to the cross, not because you deserved it, not because there was something good in you that that led God to do that, not at all. It wasn't that that you deserved salvation. No, it was was grace. It was a gift. And God's going to continue the work that He's begun in you because He loves you, and the evidence that He loves you so much is the cross, and if He gave His Son to you freely of no charge, don't you know that He also freely, by His grace, is going to give you what you need to make it through? It's glorious. Amen? It's glorious. And so as we find ourselves tonight coming and considering this sacrifice, considering what he went through, 
considering that his visage was, was marred, his appearance was marred so that, that you couldn't even depict that it was a man. And all because of his love for us. May it lead us to a place tonight of just saying, Lord, Lord, I realize, I recognize, I understand that the point that which I'm pressing toward is as I'm getting closer to you is that, that I would die. That I would come to, to understand what it means to love you. That I would come to understand that you're seeking to conform me into to your image. So Lord, have your way with me. Have your way with my heart. Let's pray. Lord, We thank you, God, for this picture. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder that we have here tonight of your sacrifice, of your love, but also, Lord, of your victory. Thank you that you chose to start this song by allowing us to see that you win, that you beat death, that you are the King of Kings, that you rose. Thank you, Lord, for giving us Easter before Good Friday. But Lord, tonight, as we consider what you went through for us. I pray, Lord, that you would just be working something within our hearts tonight of a depth, of a greater appreciation for your sacrifice, for your love, and what it accomplished that you who were sinless became sin-filled so that we who were sin-filled could become sin-free. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, Lord.